0: This is increment 19, Hebrews 2020. 20, we see Jesus. This is the eighth message since our separation as an assembly, even though we're not certainly separated in spirit and in heart. And we want to continue in this remarkable series in Hebrews. I won't say it's a remarkable series. I will say that Hebrews is a remarkable sermon, unparalleled. And we're very grateful for this opportunity. Don't be confused if you're watching this instead of just listening. I'm all dressed up and it's only a midweek service. But let's have a word of prayer. I'm grateful for all of our groups across the country and individuals who are listening for Tetelestai Phalanx and their faithfulness. I'm grateful to be here also with my indispensable co-laborer, Jim McClory, who's been with me in all these eight services in the video and audio booth. Father, we thank you for this opportunity together to truly see Jesus as he's portrayed by your spirit and by the word. We pray that you'll grant us the grace to make this opportunity reach its full potential in all the hearers, for we ask it in Christ's name, and as we pray today, of course, for the rulers, the leaders of our nation at this special time of crisis, that you'll cause them to look to you, that you'll grant them a wisdom that is beyond their wits. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. As we approach Good Friday, as it's called, we remember that before he was crowned with glory and honor. Jesus' head was crowned with a crown of thorns and that his feet were impaled to the cross before they rested on the footrest which his father provided. This footrest consists not only of all his enemies, but of all his enemies who have been reconciled who will have been reconciled to God in him. And beneath his feet are all things universally. It is the mystery of God's will to bring everything together in Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. To reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians one twenty. So his enemies are destroyed not by their blood but by the blood of Jesus by being reconciled to God and by being brought together in Jesus Christ. The exception among all these enemies is death. That enemy is not said just to be brought under the feet of Jesus, but utterly destroyed, abolished, and annihilated. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six chooses a verb that means annihilate or abolish. At the cross and in the body of his flesh through death, Jesus abolished not human beings, but the enmity between them, and between human beings and God. God destroys enemies by destroying enmity. Just as the enmity in Esau was destroyed, and Esau embraced Jacob, so the enmity in people for one another and for God will be destroyed. The same is true for the kings of this earth and for the nations and the peoples. In the exordium of Hebrews, the initial exordium is Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. We saw the phrase tapanta, T-A-P-A-N-T-A. And that means all things without exception. That means all beings, whether rational or not. The sun currently... Carries everything without exception. Bearing it carefully, powerfully forward. Toward a conclusion that befits the divine purpose. And this is in accordance with God's word. In Isaiah 46 and verse 10. After forty six nine, Where God says, I am God and there is no one like me. He then says, declaring the beginning, in the beginning, the end, or declaring from the beginning, the end, and from ancient times, things not yet done or made, saying, all my purpose, plan, intention, and resolve, same word used in Ephesians 1.11, will be established. I will accomplish all. I will accomplish all my will. And in Isaiah 49, verse 6, flipping the script a little, God says to his son, to his anointed, to Christ, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations. Notice that. A light for the nations. My salvation to the ends of the earth. Fascinatingly, the word for salvation in the Hebrew text is Yeshua, the name for Jesus. The Greek text has Soteria Salvation. The Psalm composer doesn't disagree with this at all. Psalm twenty two, verses twenty seven to thirty one, this is what the scripture says All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh the Lord. This proves the success of Isaiah forty nine six. All the families of the nations, please notice that reference, all the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship is Yahweh's, the Lord's. He rules over the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Even the one who cannot preserve his life, that's referring to Jesus, of whom they said while he was crucified, he saved others, he cannot save himself. They spoke the truth there. He could not save himself, for he was in fact saving all in his dying and death. Verse 30 goes on to say in Psalm 22. A seed will serve him. The future generations will be told about the Lord. They will come and tell a people yet to be born about his righteousness, what he has done. His righteousness, what he has done. What he has done is his righteousness. His righteousness is his all-saving act. Now, right from the initial exordium of Hebrews, which is Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, Hebrews 1, 5 then launches a cascade of references to the Greek text of the Hebrew Scriptures. That cascade, also known as a florigellium, goes all the way through one thirteen. The first two of these references are both in Hebrews 1.5. They both deal with the Son. They are Psalm 2, seven and Second Samuel 7.14, which is also found in First 1 Chronicles 17.13. The first is from a psalm. The second is from an oracle spoken to David by Nathan a prophet in whom God spoke long ago. Both the psalm reference and the excerpt from Nathan's Oracle have to do with the one whom God calls uniquely my son. God, who spoke in the prophets to the fathers long ago, Hebrews 1.1, has spoken and still speaks in these last days in his son. He still speaks in his son. We can almost hear Jesus say, "These are written about me." From Luke 24:44. Just as he said this to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And just before, quote, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Luke 24:45. To have our minds opened by Jesus is to have the eyes of our heart or the eyes of our understanding enlightened to see Jesus in the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament. Hebrews is a perfect place to be if you want to see Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. Psalm two seven is written in the context of a son who is also an heir. Please notice this. Psalm 2, Psalm 2, 7, cited in Hebrews 1, 5, is a psalm in which the son is also called the heir. For to the same one whom God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, he then said to him, just ask me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. That's Psalm 2.8. So when a, a psalm or a passage of scripture or a verse or even a phrase is sometimes cited in the New Testament, we should look at both ends of that. Check out the context of that passage, that quotation. Now this psalm resonates with the exordium, where it says that God appointed the son to be heir of all things. Ask me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Flowing together with Psalm 2-7 is the part of Nathan's oracle that says I will be to him father, that is, father by name, and he will be to me son, that is, son by name. As father is the name by which the son calls God, so son is the divine name by which the father calls this unique son. The PT, that's what I call the author of Hebrews, a pastor, theologian. The PT puts a point on this with regard to the angels. He says, about which of the angels did God ever say? I will be his father and he will be my son. The point is, God never said that about an angel. Just like God never said to any angel. You are my son, today I have begotten you. In both of these references, we see Jesus. Psalm 2 begins with the identification of a conspiracy by the kings of the earth and by the very nations that this son was to inherit. They conspire to dethrone Yahweh and his anointed king, says Psalm 2. This prophetic picture was fulfilled in the collusion of the leaders of Jerusalem headed up by Caiaphas the high priest and the procurator of Rome, Pontius Pilate, a conspiracy to crucify Jesus. If they had only known against whom they were colluding, they never would have crucified Jesus, the Lord of glory, the one who is the very radiance of God's glory, the very stamp of his substance. By crucifying Jesus, they enthroned Yahweh and the very anointed one whom they were attempting to dethrone. Consequently, the psalmist declares they had been imagining all along a vain thing, a futile enterprise. Psalm 2, 1 to 3 says, why do the nations rage? Notice that, the nations rage. Why are they violently moved is what he's saying. And the peoples conspire in vain. The kings of the earth, says verse 2, take their stand and the leaders gather together against the Lord and against his Christ. The Septuagint translation, the Greek text actually has the Christ, his Christ, his anointed king is what is meant. They say, let's break their fetters, let's throw off their yoke. Why would we want to throw off a yoke that's easy, a burden that's light? Well, they think they can depose God's Christ. Now, this psalm was not fulfilled in some famous world war in the past or in some future world war or Armageddon campaign in the future, for that matter. It was fulfilled when the leaders of Jerusalem conspired with the representative of the Roman Empire, which at the time ruled over all the nations of the earth. And when they colluded to crucify Jesus, whom Pilate rightly called your king in John 19, 15. This is very important because in Psalm 2, we have the coming together of the titles of Son, heir. H-E-I-R, and king, all for God's anointed. What the Septuagint translates as to Christou, to your Christ, speaking to God. Being called my son has something very important to do with the accession to the throne of a king. That this king was to inherit the nations of the earth means, of course, that he deserves the title and has the title King of Kings. 1 Timothy 6.15, Revelation 19.16. Now, the kings of the earth, a phrase lifted right out of Psalm 2, is used eight times in Revelation. Revelation 1.5 six fifteen seventeen two seventeen eighteen eighteen three nineteen nineteen to twenty one and twenty one twenty four. And once we read the kings of the whole inhabited world Revelation sixteen fourteen. In Revelation one five, Jesus Christ is called quote the ruler of the kings of the earth. As well as the firstborn from the dead. And that's another important designation of Jesus Christ, the firstborn, prototokos, from the dead. In the same verse, Revelation 1 5, John declares Jesus Christ to have loved us and liberated us from our sins by his own blood. And then in verse 6, that he constituted the readers and the seers of this apocalypse as a kingdom of priests to God, his father. Though Jesus Christ is not explicitly stated here to be a priest, it is difficult to imagine him not being a priest or even the high priest. If he's responsible for making a people, a kingdom of priests, Only in Hebrews is Jesus explicitly declared. Only in Hebrews is Jesus explicitly declared to be a priest. And God declares him to be that. Indeed, a priest throughout the age after the order of Melchizedek. A priest throughout the age after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110.4, referring back to Genesis 14.17-20. And then referring forward to Hebrews 5, 6, and several other points in Hebrews where that's quoted. Along with the phrase, the kings of the earth, the nations, the nations is a phrase also lifted from Psalm 2 and appears throughout Revelation. Now, it's very important that we recognize this. In Revelation 2.26, for example, as well as Revelation 12.5 and Revelation 19.15, those three key places, there are allusions to, <clears throat> or even partial quotations, of Psalm 2.9. We're still in Psalm 2, where the Lord is said to, quote, rule the nations with a rod of iron and shatter them like a clay pot, Violent imagery, but imagery. That this most decisively does not mean, listen carefully, that this decisively does not mean that he will ultimately destroy these very nations, including those who raged against him, is indicated by the last three mentions of the nations, in Revelation all of which reveal these nations these very nations as part of the new creation of all things I'm going to cite them to you right now Revelation 21 24 and I'm gonna quote 21 24 all the way through 26 21 verses 24 to 26 and then again. Revelation 20:22 20, which I will quote the verse the first three verses listen carefully and note the use of the words the nations and the kings of the earth and their ultimate destiny Revelation 21:22 and I saw no temple in it that's the new Jerusalem for the Lord God the ruler of all and the lamb Is its temple. And the city has no need of the sun. Or the moon to give it light. For the glory of God. Illuminates it. And its lamp. Is the lamb. Verse 24 now. And the nations. Will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth. Will carry their glory. Into it. And each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. And they will admit the glory and the honor of the nations into it. The open gates will admit the nations and the glory of the and the honor of the nations into it. Again, in Revelation 22, extremely important once again. My translation from a previous series, which we called Rev the Book. Revelation 22, 1 through 3. And he, that's the angel of Jesus, showed me the river of the water of life, radiant as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. There it is again, God and the Lamb, flowing in the middle of the broad way. And on each side of the river, the species of tree called the tree of life, bearing 12 fruits, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of that species of tree are for the healing service of the nations. Please notice that. The healing of the nations. And there will no longer be and he curse and the throne of God and the lamb are in it and his slaves will serve him. His servants will serve him. The highest form of service, imperial slaves of the King of Kings, willing servants. Now to pause just for a moment, the healing of the nations is an, ex- an especially powerful phrase given that at the moment I'm speaking at least 182 nations of this earth have been affected by a plague our prayer in this holy week is for the king of kings to heal the nations now the final destiny of the nations of the earth and their kings over all the course of time, not just now, is portrayed in Revelation and prophesied in the Prophets and the Psalms. This is all part and parcel of what the PT calls so great salvation in Hebrews 2.3. It is this so great salvation that I, for one, refuse to neglect. Moreover, I refuse to let you forget it. Back to Psalm 2. In a way, this message is an exegesis of Psalm 2 with its references in Revelation and in, of course, Hebrews. The rulers of the peoples in Psalm 2 have been wasting their time with a vain scheme. The father responds by laughing at them His preordained and predetermined counsel was to have his anointed delivered by the leaders of apostate Jerusalem of the second temple era to the godless Romans to be crucified and then to be raised from the dead. Acts 2.23. These nations and their representatives and kings were conspiring to their own undoing and their own salvation and to the establishment of God's anointed king whose resurrection from the dead making him the firstborn from the dead would be part of his exaltation by which he would ascend and exceed to the throne of the universe which God created by him to son, S-O-N, and king, and heir, H-E-I-R, the PT will yet add priest. But we are anticipating his expository intent. Strangely, and this is kind of strange at first reading of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews only mentions the resurrection from the dead explicitly the resurrection of Jesus, that is, from the dead, one time. And that's in connection with the blood of the everlasting covenant and with Jesus' title as the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews thirteen twenty, The God of peace who raised from the dead Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, because of the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, the resurrection is often not mentioned explicitly through Hebrews, not because the PT is not concerned with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is most certainly not because he doesn't believe it or believe in it. It's because he views Jesus' resurrection as part of his ascension and exaltation and accession to the throne at the right side of the majesty in the heavens. The Christ event, as we call it, was only completed when the Son sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. The one who sits in the heavens, his majesty, the father, and who laughed at those who conspired to throw off the restraints of Yahweh and his anointed. That's the father. This is the theme and the motif of Psalm 2, which launches the florigelium, that's F-L-O-R-I-G-E-L-I-U-M, or the Catena, C-A-T-E-N-A, of verses, a cascade of verses, from the Greek text of the Hebrew Scriptures. For as Psalm 2, 4 says, again back to Psalm 2, he who inhabits the heavens will laugh out loud at them and ridicule them. Now, this simply implies that that's what these rulers did when they crucified the Anointed One, and they did. He who laughs last, this is another quote, not from the Scriptures, but nevertheless meaningful, He who laughs last, laughs best. He who inhabits the heavens, as Psalm 2 calls him, is the same as the majesty in the highest height, as Hebrews calls him. He is our father in heaven. He is our father in heaven, to whom we pray, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Father is the majesty next to whom the Son sits in the heavens, having made purification for sins. The purification of sins, and please note this and hear this and register this in your soul. The purifications of sins has the same universality As the reconciliation of all things. Which would have been impossible without the act. Of the purification of sins. The purification of sins by the son. Is the act of an age abiding priest. And this is the theme that the PT intends to develop. The one who is son and heir. And anointed king is also, quote, the priest throughout the age after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110.4. This is the additional disclosure that the PT intends to bring before his readers, the additional disclosure that they need to be incentivized to carry on, to run the race of this agona which is the critical juncture of two aeons. That's where we are right now, in the agona, in the juncture of two clashing ages. We have a race to run during this agona, within this agona. Let's run it without impediments, weights, and the sin of unbelief that so easily ensnares and trips us up. Looking unto Jesus, the beginner and the finisher of faith's race who endured the cross thinking very little of its shame and disgrace and is now set down at the right hand of the father exalted now when we consider the purification of sins we are concerned with the removal of sin and that's what it means the removal of sin in Hebrews 9.26. We are thinking of the taking away of the sin of the world, the taking away of the sin of the world, of the whole cosmos in John one twenty nine, As John the baptizer said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos, the sin in all the world, the sinfulness of the whole world universe that which causes its entropy the purification of sins therefore is akin to the restoration of all things in acts 321 the universal regeneration in matthew 1928 the making of all things to be new by the enthroned one in revelation 21 5 the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth, in Ephesians 1.10 and Colossians 1.20, in the anointed one. None of these things, including the time of correction, as it's called in Hebrews 9.10, or the rectification or justification of all, as it's called in Romans 5.18, none of these are possible without the removal of sin. Neither can our race be run effectively without our putting off from ourselves every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and trips us up. Again, Hebrews 12, 1 and following. Back to Psalm 2, still again. It is important for a proper interpretation of the meaning of the formal and solemn declaration of God to the Son. You are my son. Today I have become your father. This is the solemn declaration of a king to a king. Of God the king to his divine and human representative. It is what a king is told when he inherits the throne. In a formal accession ceremony. When he ascends to sit on the throne. This is part of the royal ideology of Israel, the royal policies and philosophy of Israel. In this case is what the father says to his son when his son sits down at his side. In that sense, the son therefore inherits a name, as we've seen, and with that name a title and authority that is higher than any of the angels, including the archangels. You are my son, today I have begotten you, is another way of saying, Take your throne, son, you are king. Here there is an intimate connectedness of Psalm two seven with Psalm one ten one, which is alluded to or quoted several times in Hebrews. In Psalm one ten one. The father says to his royal son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. It's quoted in Hebrews 1.13 and also in 10.13, much deeper in the epistle. This verse in turn is intimately connected to Psalm 8, 4 through 6, which is quoted in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8 from the Septuagint of or the Greek text of Hebrew of Psalm forty-five, six, and seven, where to the Son the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We see a creative tapestry here being woven throughout the discourse in which exposition is intervo- interwoven creatively with exhortation, something we saw a little bit in last times message exhortation in fact shows forth more than exposition in this very pastoral embroidery this pastoral embroidery that we call hebrews is a mix of exposition teaching and exhortation with exhortation being more dominant because this is a pastoral sermon of sorts and a great word of encouragement, as Hebrews 13, says. Now, as we move to our final gears that are grinding in this message, the ex- accession to the throne began when Jesus was nailed to the cross with his feet and his hands impaled to the wood. Above his head was the placard that read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. But Jesus' accession to the throne was completed only when he ascended and sat down in the height of the heavens next to his father. This is a cause for great celebration. But there's more. There's also a reason for great comfort. Because this king is also a priest who represents us, who makes intercession for us, who advocates for us, who runs to our aid, who helps us. He's a faithful and merciful high priest, according to Hebrews 2.17 and 18. After laughing, the father rebukes the nations with their kings, and then it says he terrifies them in his fury. When did that happen? Well, it happened when darkness descended over the land when Jesus was crucified. That darkness was followed by an earthquake that shook Jerusalem and tore the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies of the earthly temple. Matthew 27:45 to 51 It shook some graves too and a whole bunch of saints were resuscitated from the dead came forth like Lazarus and wandered around the city That was terrifying to the nations and their kings This happened just as the veil which is Christ's flesh in Hebrews 10:20 was torn to reveal the way to the heavenly holy of holies, not of this creation. Hebrews 9.11. Back to Psalm 2. This is ending up being kind of an exegesis of Psalm 2, as well as a furtherance of our study in Hebrews. In 2.6 of the Psalms came the revealing declaration. Yahweh says, quote, I have installed my king on Mount Zion, my holy mountain. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The Greek text actually has the son speaking in this verse, who says, but I was appointed king by him on Zion, his holy mountain. In one case, the father speaks in another, the son responds. And this is important because there is an ongoing conversation or dialogue recorded in Hebrews between the father and the son, which we'll see. There it is. You are my son. Today I have begotten you and I will be to him father and he will be to me son. These are both said on the occasion of the son taking the throne of the universe. None of the angels were ever called my son like that. No one but Jesus was ever called son by the father in accession to the throne of the universe as heir of all things. When we look to see who is on that throne, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. The Son is the same Son who is called the firstborn, Prototokos, in Hebrews 1 6. Now, in our final gear, both Zion, Psalm 2 6, Zion, and firstborn, Hebrews 1 6, and Revelation 1 5, both Zion and firstborn come into play at the end of the discourse, called Hebrews, toward the end anyway. Just before the final warning and exhortation, Hebrews 12, 25 to 29, there is a depiction of Zion and the firstborn in Hebrews 12, 22 and 24, or through 24. So a kind of an inclusio exists between Hebrews 1, 6 and Hebrews 12:22 to 24. In 12:22 to 24, we have a picture of Mount Zion, and it says we have come to that mountain, not to Mount Sinai. That mountain, Mount Zion, and that passage is reminiscent of a passage in Revelation 14 with the lamb at the center and at the top of the picture in the Wandering People of God, which is Ernst Cosiman's book on Hebrews, his his own commentary on Hebrews, which he called The Wandering People of God, Ernst Cosiman wrote a paragraph while he was dialoguing with or citing a, another German scholar named Ernst Lohmeyer. Ernst Lohmeyer wrote this in nineteen twenty six, and so this paragraph in Cosiman's book describes this celebratory place, this Mount Zion, while he's citing Lohmeyer's study, not to confuse you. But the paragraph reads like this, and this goes into what I've been saying, that we come into Hebrews having studied Revelation, having studied Romans, having, having studied Better Call Paul, having studied John's gospel. It says this, and having studied the mystery and doing and living theology as well quote revelation represents the scheme present in hebrews 12 22 and following again the heavenly zion is the sign or is the site of a panegyros the panegyros is simply celebration it's the same word used in hebrews 12 uh, a celebration formed by angelic hosts and the community of the faithful gathered to receive a divine proclamation. Here, too, there is a reference to the imminent final judgment. But please notice this. The announcement of which, this final judgment, is described as an eternal gospel, an eternal announcement of good news. In striking analogy to the train of thought in Hebrews 12, 22, he sees a striking connection between the thought of Revelation 14 and the thought and picture in Hebrews 12, 22. But at the center, he's, I'm going on with the quote now, but at the center stands the epiphany of the Lamb. Please notice that. At the center in both Revelation 14 and in Hebrews 12, to 24, stands the epiphany of the Lamb. Indeed, he goes on to say, as at the beginning of the messianic acts extending from there over the entire world, says Lomeyer, this is the beginning of the messianic acts which extend from there, Mount Zion over the whole world, the universal behold the universally saving significance of the lamb. They go on to say, here says Kozuman in this paragraph, the theke. Nia or New Covenant of hebrews twelve twenty four corresponds to the Ode Kaine or the New Song of revelation fourteen three the content of which is obviously identical with that of the New diatheke or the New Covenant, but all of revelation fourteen, and I'm moving to a close here for this message. All of Revelation 14, just as Hebrews twelve twenty two and following, intends to show to the people of God still wandering on earth the greatness of their promise and their goal. In both instances, Revelation 14, Hebrews 12, what gives the text its peculiar character is that it discloses an eschatological event on earth. Now to that, in my view, I'm going to say this. In my view, the particular character of both texts is the epiphany of the Lamb at the epicenter. We see Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sin of the cosmos. And, Father, we pray that you will allow our eyes, the eyes of our understanding, to be enlightened. On this so-called Holy Week, we see Jesus, your Son, crowned with a crown of thorns, impaled to a tree. We also see him crowned with a crown of glory and honor, which represents not only the destiny of the Son of Man, but the destiny of all those in him, all those redeemed by him. And it's this expectation that we have today, Father. And may we, in the believing of this, have hope overflow in us by the Holy Spirit, as Romans fifteen thirteen closes with, in essence. And Father, may we say, God, our King, and Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, heal the nations.